love it. I love it. Okay, we are in Acts, as you see there above, Acts chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 12. If you've got a Bible, jump in there. If you don't have a Bible, um, bring your Bible next week. We would love for you to have a Bible. If you don't, um, we can get you one. Just talk to us. little background. Um, if, if you remember last week, uh, these were the last moments that the apostles had with Jesus. Uh, they had three years of, of ministry where they were learning from Jesus and his teachings. They were watching Jesus and everything that he did, the, the miracles that he performed, all of his teachings, just j daily life uh, with Jesus. And then he obviously goes to the cross. He dies. He's crucified. He raises again. He's with them for 40 days. 40 days that he's with them, uh, he, he's convincing the him, them that he really is the Messiah, that he really did uh, raise from the dead, and he is preparing them uh, to go out. And then Acts 1-8, look at that one. This is really the outline for the entire book. Acts 1-8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So you imagine as they say, it's like, okay, we're going to see power when the Holy Spirit comes. When's the Holy Spirit going to come? It's like, hey, you just wait. You just wait. And then once the Holy Spirit comes, it's game time. And you're going to go to Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah. And, this, and you're going to go to Judea. And they're like, okay, yeah. And then Samaria. And they're like, well, Samarians. And then he says, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. I mean, if you could just imagine that that mission that you have in your head when the Holy Spirit comes, everything is going to change. And we're going to go to the ends of the earth and we're going to face intense persecution. And we might lose our lives for Jesus, to be a witness of Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus ascends. And he goes to be with the Father and they're looking up and then two angels show up say, hey, he's gone. He's gone. What are you looking there for? He's gone. It's yours now. It's yours. When the Holy Spirit comes, it is your time. And so we, we, we had that moment that we, we saw last week. And now, if you can just imagine, I mean, you could put yourselves in their shoes. College football is back, which I'm a happy man that college football is back. And, uh, and I can't imagine even in those moments I mean, you're, you're sitting in a locker room and you're, you're about to go out into battle and there's 100,000 people that are sitting around cheering you on with thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions more watching you on TV and you're just about to bust out of those doors of that locker room and, and go to battle. And that, that feeling of, of fear, of nervousness, of excitement, I mean, this is what they're feeling times 100. He says, we're going to the ends of the earth. I mean, can you imagine all the questions that they had? Like, I don't know any of the other languages. <laughs> you know, like, how are we going to talk to these people? How are we going to make it? How are we going to have food? How is this going to work? They have all of these questions. There's an excitement. There's a fear. And so picking it up in verse 12, this is life now that Jesus is gone. So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip 
and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus, but Judas, the son of James, just a clarification there. There's 11 men that they just named. Who are those 11 men? So the disciples, minus one, who's gone now? Judas Iscariot, exactly right. So there's 11 men left, and they go up into this room, uh, and it's not just those 11. There's actually 120 that are there with them, and that's the crew. That's the team that Jesus says, you're going to go to the ends of the earth as my witnesses. And that's a pretty daunting task, right? The ends of the earth? Like, we're the ones? You're sending us, us 120? I don't know how many people are in this room right now, but it's probably anywhere from like 100 to 120. Say, hey, you guys go to the entire earth and be my witnesses. Like, that seems a little bit impossible. It seems like printing the internet or boiling the ocean. Like, that seems a little bit daunting. You're like, you want, how? like, we can't do that. It's just math, you know, that doesn't work. And so there's a fear, there's an excitement, there's all of these things. But all they know to do right now is to wait. I don't know about you. I'm not the biggest fan of waiting, especially when I don't know how long I'm waiting. They don't know when the Holy Spirit's going to come. They don't know how it's going to come. They don't know what that moment's going to be like. All they know is that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And you just wait in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes, then you go. So there's this unknown in this waiting of like, what's this going to look like? How are we going to know? Like, is the Holy Spirit, has it come now? Like, are we ready? Right? There's this, there's this processing for them as they're trying to wait, which is probably a lot of, of, of us. And like, we're waiting like, how do I know? How do I know that it's just happened? Like, is this, is this where I'm supposed to go? Is this where I'm supposed to be? Is this the person I'm supposed to date? Is this the person I'm supposed to marry? So we go out to the field and we start plucking flowers and we say, maybe this is how I'll find out, right? We're just trying to process all of these things and like, is the waiting done? Can it be done? Let's just wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And so what do these guys do? We see who's there. Verse 14, these all with one mind. They all know why they're there. They have one purpose. We're continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's, that's the crew right there that make up this 120 people. And they continually devote themselves to prayer. You've got to ask why. We know it's not to bring the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say, you need to pray so that the Holy Spirit will come. You need to pray so that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when you pray enough and long enough, then I'm going to give the Holy Spirit. No, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come. That's a fact. So they choose to pray, not for the Holy Spirit, but they choose to pray that in their waiting, they commune with God. And they are with God. Maybe that's a good learning moment for us. Maybe prayer is more than just getting what we want and trying to pin God's arm behind his back until he gets us what he wants or what we want. Maybe sometimes in the waiting, we just pray and we commune with God. I can tell you their prayers are in a preparation for what they are about to do. It's for respon the responsibility that they have 
in front of them. They know that they have been given a global mission that will most likely cost them their lives and they will face great persecution. And so they pray because they're afraid, because they feel out of control, because they feel that this is so much bigger than them, and it is. And here's something that we can learn about prayer. It probably tells us a little bit. A lot of prayer is about a dependence upon God. Dependent people pray. Prideful and independent people do not pray because they've got this. Say, I've got this, Kevin. I don't need to pray. I'm in control. Only people that are dependent, that know they are out of control, that feel that they are out of control, will be people that pray. And so there's, there's no a doubt in the apostles' minds that they are out of control. Say, we can't do this. We can't go to the ends of the earth with us 120 people. God, we need you. We can't do this. We talked about this last week, right? That the, the power uh, that we receive when the Holy Spirit comes is the means for any ministry to be done. We can't do anything in and of ourselves. It is totally on the Holy Spirit to work. And they see that. They have a humility that they carry and humble people pray, dependent people pray. Psalm 127, I have this up here. This is a verse they know, I guarantee it. Unless the Lord builds a house, they who build it labor in vain. So unless the Lord is in the building of the house, you can work all you want, but it's in vain. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is futile. It is purposeless for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of painful labor. For this is how he gives to his beloved sleep. Would you just rest and trust me? This doesn't mean just inactivity. But it certainly isn't just anxious, busy work anxious moving about trying to figure all of these things because we have to get it in control there's a trust as we move there's a prayerful mindset and attitude as we move into things as we wait and as we walk so god i trust you and you take another step god i trust you and you take another step if you're not in it it's in vain and so they trust the lord Now, if I were to take a wild guess about a shared commonality in this room or probably a shared problem that we have in this room is that we don't pray much. Maybe we pray before meals. Maybe we go to thump. Shout out to those thumpers at 6 a.m. Maybe, maybe we go to that. Uh, But we're not a prayerful people. We wouldn't be like them and verse 14, that we're continually devoted to prayer. And I think the reason that we aren't continually devoted to prayer, we're not a prayerful people, is because we're not dependent on God. We think we have things under control. We think we've kind of got this together, right? Is that not what we feel? We're used to our normal days. We only pray when we feel scared, when we feel anxious, when we're kind of like, this is overwhelming. God, I need you. And then the test is done and you go about your life and you're like, yeah, I crushed that. I studied. (laughs) 
as if you weren't relying on God. And so our problem often is that we aren't relying on the Lord in our daily lives. It's only the big things that show up that we can't see past where all of a sudden we think, I really need God for this. And then we pray. And what I'm not saying is that it's bad to pray when you feel out of control. That's a great thing. I think the bad thing is that we don't feel out of control even though we are completely out of control. We have this insane view, this prideful view that I've got this under control and we don't have anything under control. God is sustaining us and providing for us every step of the way. And yet in our disillusionment, we think it's us. It's messed up. It's wrong. I, I remember first time I ever drove uh, to Colorado. It's a group of my friends. We drove to Colorado in the wintertime and it was snowing the entire way. Road conditions were rough the entire way. And we had all of these switchbacks and just it was not a fun a traveling experience and I was just so nervous and I like to drive I love driving I usually don't get nervous about driving all these different things and I just get so nervous and I am praying and praying and praying and I can't sleep the night before because I'm just nervous about this whole process I'm like I don't want to slide off the road I don't want to go flying down a mountain because of the ice and all this stuff and so I'm just nervous and praying Lord would you give traction to our tires Lord would you give traction to our tires just over and over again because I knew we couldn't do anything we couldn't do anything at all. And so we go on this trip and we get there and we have a fun time and then we get back and we have all of these things. And the first people that I start talking to, they're like, well, how was the trip? How was, was the roads bad? And then I, and I kid you not, I'm so mad at myself. But I was like, I, it's really easy to drive through ice. <laughs> like I wasn't worried about it at all. I'm like, you, you liar. Like I was, I was so dependent on the Lord to give traction every step of the way and then I get on the other side of it and I'm like yeah no I'm pretty good at this whole thing like that was me as if the Lord like I wasn't so dependent on the Lord and then I got used to it see that's what happens we get comfortable and the things that used to be scary to us that we would rely on the Lord in we just get comfortable because we're living it so much and we start to take for granted that it's God who sustains it all and when we get comfortable we're no longer dependent. And we're no longer dependent, we stop praying. We stop trusting God for every step of the way. So when we don't feel out of control, we don't pray. And to take this a little bit deeper, I don't think we have a daily dependence on God because we aren't seeking to live fruitful lives. I don't think you are trusting God with your every day because you never step out of your comfort zone. I think that's our problem. We have found comfort and we have found a little safe spot and we found our little Christian bubble, which it's great to have Christian community. That's awesome. Don't pop the bubble. But I'm saying you got to leave the bubble and you got to love people and you got to have conversations with people that don't know God that you might get rejected, that you might get mocked, that you might have all of those things because that's the call of God. And yet we have found all of these practices to just find our little niche and we're like, I'm gonna stay here and it's comfortable. And now that it's comfortable, guess what happens? We don't feel out of control. We don't feel as though we need God. And so we don't pray. When you talk about uh, a lot of just church studies, is the first two things to go are evangelism and prayer. 
first two things to go in a church are evangelism and prayer, usually in that order. So eh, we're not going to go out into the community. We're not going to go be missional. We're not going to do all of those things. We're just going to have stuff in here. Then you no longer need to rely on the Lord, and so prayer goes as well. But that can't be for us as believers. We have to have that intention, a purpose about ourselves that the classmates you have, the people you meet, the family that you have that doesn't know the Lord, it's you. It's us. I tell you about this all the time. It's every time I stop at a gas station, there's always this randomly friendly person on the outside of the gas pump that just wants to talk to me. And I'm like, okay, God, I'll say something. And I have this conversation. I'm like, that never happens to anybody else. It's just me. Every time I stop at a gas station, I'm like, I have to have a conversation with this person about Jesus. And I'm just like trying, like, so you... What do you do? You do church? I do church. I'm like, what is that? Why am I saying that? Like, I sound so weird, but I, I'm like, all right, whatever gets me in the conversation. And I just have these moments. And in that moment, can I tell you, and I know if you've ever been there, you've experienced this. Before you're about to share the gospel with somebody, you're about to take that leap, you're praying. You're in here. You're like, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, please. Like, help me, help me, help me. Or maybe if uh, we're not actually going to do this, but if I said, hey, next week, We're going to show up here and we're going to pray for 20 minutes and then we're going to load up in the cars and we're just going to go all through Denton and we're going to share the gospel. That's what we're doing next week. We're not we're not doing the bridge. We're going to share the gospel. Can I just take a guess that we'd have about 34 people here next week uh, and all of you would be like, man, homework just stacked up all of a sudden. Right. We'd have all of these reasons to not be here. Why? Because we want to be comfortable. We want to be safe. We don't want to. That's awkward. That's scary. That's all of these things. Like we can find a laundry list of reasons to stay in our comfort zone. But can I tell you for your, you 34 people that show up, these 20 minutes of prayer that we have in here, I mean, you're on your knees in the corner pleading with God because you're out of control. Say, I can't save this person. I can't do anything. And it's in those places where we are exactly where God wants us to be because we're a dependent people that rely on him and pray, asking God to move, asking God to work. And so that's these apostles. They're praying as they wait. It's 10 days that they end up waiting, 40 days that Jesus is there, he ascends, and then 10 days before Pentecost, which we'll talk about next week, which is the 50th day, uh, 50 days after Passover. There's 10 days, a week and a half, They're together and and they're praying in preparation for the mission that is ahead of them. Verse 15, it's at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, if you were with us, Two weeks ago, we talked about the radical transformation from these disciples that were confused. They didn't know what Jesus was doing. They didn't know if Jesus was the guy they thought he was, but every time they would be confident, they would be not confident. And Peter, this guy that's talking, he stands up in front of 120 people and he says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And if you're just tracking along, you're like, wait, Peter, like, Not so long ago, you denied Jesus three times. 
that you even knew him, and now you're saying the scripture had to be fulfilled. I love that, don't you? All of a sudden, the Bible clicks. The Old Testament they see was pointing to Jesus. And so they have this incredible moment where all of a sudden these things where they're just getting these individual puzzle pieces about what Jesus is doing. And they're like, what do we do with this? How does this fit? All of a sudden those things are together and they see, wow, this is all, this was all prophesied. All of this was predicted that it would happen and happen and happen and happen. And it's got to be a wild feeling if you're an apostle to realize, wow, we just lived scripture. Like we're living scripture. Everything that is happening was prophesied. And this first one, he says, was about Judas. He said, what Jesus did in betraying Jesus, it had to be fulfilled. It had to happen. It was predicted by the mouth of David. So when we talk about we, a theological term that scripture is inspired, it is God-breathed, uh, that we say it's not just mortal men that kind of wrote this stuff. And, and it all just kind of clicks together that the Holy Spirit was guiding these people towards truth. And you're like, well, how do you say that? Verse 16 is a pretty good way to say it. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. That God was speaking through David. And it was foretold, meaning it was foreshadowing, foretelling. It's about the future. And so David is living this moment in his life, and there's some application there, but it is going to be fully fulfilled in Jesus' days. And so what is that? What is that prophecy? Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. You realize Judas was with Jesus from the beginning, like all of these guys, he was, he was a friend with them. He said all along, Jesus knew and God knew that he was going to betray everything that they had been doing. They knew it all along. Here's a, here's a passage from Psalms, Psalm 41, 9. This is from David. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So he ate bread with us, most recently the Passover. He's the one that I give this bread to. He will betray me. And then the moment he does, Judas rises and goes. And he takes a bribe of 30 silver coins and leads this mob to where Jesus was. And he says, this is the man. And then they take him away, be put on trial, to be arrested, to be sentenced to death, even though there was no crime that they could find against him, except that he claimed to be God. Guess who was wrong? Them. But the point here is Judas, all along they knew he would betray Jesus. Here in the ones that they put, verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. That was the bribe that he took of 30 silver coins. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Gross, right? Uh, verse 19, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama. That is field of blood. 
so what happened here, the Gospels tell the story, is after Judas betrays Jesus, they just kind of, they don't want anything to do with Judas anymore. It's like, no, you were just, you're just a pawn in this whole game. And he is hit with this intense guilt, just this intense guilt for everything that he does. And he tries to give this money back to the Pharisees. I don't want this money. I don't want any of this stuff. I don't, I don't, I hate what I did and all of these things. And they just buy this field and he goes out to this field and he tries to hang himself, but the, the rope breaks or something along those lines. He's unable to get up there in that moment when he falls down, his, his gut just busts open, his intestines are everywhere and he dies. And all of these people know that's the field of blood. That was Judas's fate. Pretty gross, pretty morbid pretty terrible ending to Judas that he deserved in the end. But, but here is what's absolutely crazy. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead, his place be made desolate, the place of his death, and let no one dwell in it. Think anybody's going to dwell in that field anymore? No, that's the field of blood. You don't go there. That's where the man that betrayed Jesus went. We're done with him. That, that comes from Psalm 69, verse 25. And the next one, let another man take his office from Psalm 109, 8. And so these, these apostles, they're starting to piece the scriptures together. Say, oh, this was about Judas betraying Jesus. It was here all along. This is what all of these things are happening. And so they see Psalm 69 that like, okay, that's what happened in the field. Uh, that's what happens here, that he took the bread, he betrays him, he roses up his heel to strike Jesus. And then they see this next thing, let another man take his office. So they say, we got to replace Judas. He was one of the 12, now we're at 11. We got to replace him. All of these things are clicking for them. And this is a huge moment for them, but also a huge moment for us. Because what we have to see is what happened to Jesus was not a mistake. It was not plan B. It was not some moment where God's like, I don't know what's going on. This wasn't supposed to happen. It was the plan all along for Jesus to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be tried, and to be crucified. From the beginning of time, this was the plan of God. He is sovereign. He is in control. Now the wrestle, and we're going to talk about this through Acts as we continue, is, well, if God is in control of all of these things, then why does he allow this stuff to happen, right? Like, why did he let Jesus, Jesus get betrayed? Why does he let bad things happen in my life? Why does he let evil people do these things? Shouldn't he just step in there and stop it? Like, why does he allow this stuff? Isn't he supposed to be good? It's intense questions, right? How do we deal with a sovereign God with a broken, sinful world? We're going to talk a lot about that. But one thing I can say for sure is that God redeems all that he allows. God redeems all that he allows. And these broken things that he allows he uses to bring about a greater redemption and restoration. So that's a big claim, right? How can you back it up? God allowed Jesus to be betrayed, to be wrongfully accused, to be wrongfully crucified. I mean, if you want to talk about the greatest injustice of the world, 
We should probably talk about the perfect God of the universe being killed by his creation, right? The perfect man, all he did was, was heal uh, lame people, not like lame, like they're losers, like they literally, their, their limbs like don't work. People that were blind, he gave sight to. Raised people from the dead. I mean, he was a good man that did incredible things and they killed him. If you want to talk about injustice, let's start there. That is the greatest injustice of all human history. And yet God uses it to redeem millions. Millions of people that would come to know him, that would come to believe in him. And so I don't know the people that you've got in your life. I don't know what has happened in your life. And maybe you have been a person or maybe you are a person that has just been shaking your fist at God because of what evil and atrocity he allowed in your life. And I don't know each individual example and how God is going to redeem each a little of those things, but I can tell you that he is. I can tell you that he's trustworthy, that he is good and he will redeem all that he allows because he is that big. And it may not be on this earth in the ways that you want, in the ways that you expect. There is an eternity before us. And that's what we should be aiming for and eyeing for the rest of our lives. Trusting him that he is going to redeem the things that he allows. But I can tell you the answer is not to say that God isn't sovereign. That God isn't in control. That's not how we answer the problem of evil. That's not how we talk to somebody that has been abused, that has been assaulted, that has lost people in their family. We don't say, well, hey, God's not in control, otherwise he would have done something. God's not just some cheerleader that's on the benches hoping that everything goes well for his people. Like there's, there's more worrisome things if God isn't in control than if he is. He is in control. He is good and he is working all things for good. That's what he does. So we can trust him in that. And the apostles see that. And so they say, verse 21, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what do you say? What are the qualifications of an apostle? Who's going to replace this guy? What must be true of them? He must be an eyewitness from the moment he was baptized by John the Baptist. All through his life, all through his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection in these 40 days. So this might be a big moment for you. You realize that more than 12 people were with Jesus all the time. There's more than 12. There were people that were with him throughout all of these things. We only see these 12 largely, but there were more men. And so they have these guys that they, they meet these qualifications of eyewitnesses through all of these things. His baptism, his life, his miracles, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. Because remember, their goal is to be witnesses of what he has done. And so they got to have a guy that is a witness of what he has done. So they put forward two men, verse 23, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship 
from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So here's this really cool moment. I mean, as we talk about decision-making in our lives, they have two guys that meet the qualifications. There's nothing wrong with either one. They could go with either one, and so they cast lots. There's a few different ways that they could. Some of them, it's like they would, they would break a stick, and whoever had the longest stick won the lot. Uh, there's another one where they would roll dice, and when whatever, like a certain number, or how are they, I don't know, like what are the odds, one in ten, right? They just kind of made up these numbers, and they rolled the lot, and whoever it fell, they said, all right, it's you. We're going with it. And, and, and here's what we struggle with as we make decisions a lot in this life. We can sometimes make decisions very easily, but I think the hardest time is when we're deciding between two good things, right? Like neither of them have any real weaknesses. Both of them are pretty great. You could go with either one. That's the one we struggle with more than anything else. Like, man, am I supposed to go to UNT or Texas Women's University? They're both absolutely perfect universities and I can't find flaws in any of them. Like this is such a tough decision, right? I'm sure all of you had the exact same experience. But like, let's say like there's this thing where there's no discernible problem and you're just confused and you're like, well, which one does God want me to pick? Because we're so afraid that if we go with option A and we go to UNT and we become a mean green eagle, we're like, well, maybe God actually wanted me to go to Texas Women's University. And we just get handcuffed in this decision between two good things. Tom talks about this all the time. He says there's, there's left and right decisions and there's right and wrong decisions. There's left and right, meaning they're both great options. There's nothing that's really wrong with either one of them. You can go either way, and it's okay. But then there's right and wrong decisions. And I hope for all of us, in right and wrong decisions, we always go right. Because if you always go right, you'll never go wrong. Keep that in your brain. That's for free. If you always go right, you'll never go wrong. So God, I'm just going to obey. What if it's hard? What if it's difficult? What if I lose friends? What if I, is it obedience? Then walk and trust God with the results. Trust God with those outcomes. But if it's the right thing to do, then go that way. But if it's two right things and they both make sense and you can't find any problems in them and and you've weighed your emotions, right? Like if you're going to one of them, that's good, but you're just kind of chasing a guy or a girl or you know some, like your drug dealer's there, like that's probably a bad motivation. You're like, what, why, I don't know. Like you just have these motivations internally and you can weigh those motivations, then you know it's wrong. But if it's just two right things, I'm gonna say something that's pretty bold here. Just pick one, just pick one. (laughs) I know, yeah. Yeah, I know, people are very indecisive and so it's difficult, but what I'm saying is you don't have to worry about, is God gonna be mad? Like, let me just tell you, God's not surprised by the decisions that you're making. If you make a well-informed decision and you trust God and you say, God, I think this is the right move for me and I don't see any problems with it and I think it's great and you kinda wanna go to this one more, go there. Say, God, I trust you. And here's the deal, he might close the door and then you get an answer from the Lord. And maybe he opens the door somewhere else and you get the answer there and you move through that door. But I'm just saying, pick one. You're not gonna surprise God. You're not gonna disappoint God unless you have bad motives and clearly uh, bad ideas about what you are doing and, and, and the things that you're doing in your life. So I hope that frees you. Just pick one. These guys, I mean, they cast lots. Maybe that's your thing, right? Maybe you just roll the dice and you're like, okay, 
she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. All right, and we go, right? And we do all these things. And now notice, they, didn't, they stopped casting lots after the Holy Spirit came. We don't see that rec- recorded anywhere else. Once the Holy Spirit came, we, all of a sudden we had a guidance within us that guides us to truth, that convicts us for sin, that does all of these things in us. And we feel that, right? We feel that within us. Sometimes we just don't have a peace about where we're going or what's going on in our life. And we're like, man, I just can't get rid of this. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit that's guiding us towards truth and guiding us towards these decisions that we can do in community in his word. But I'm saying don't don't freak out about decisions and think you're going to move outside the will of God because you can't if you're trying to walk with him and just be faithful to what he's revealed already. And so they go with Matthias. Means gift of the Lord. That's what Matthias means, gift of the Lord. Here's what's cool about Matthias as he goes on to live his life. We have a little bit of a historical record about him uh, that he, he preached in Judea, which was that province, that region that he was in for a while. And uh, he, was, he was a preacher, gospel preacher. And then he moved to a place called uh, Colchis or Colchis, which is uh, north of Jerusalem, uh, north of Turkey, up by the Black Sea. I don't know if you, maybe if you're really good with maps, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's north, okay? It's like modern day uh, Georgia. And so, and he goes up there and, and he continues his ministry. We have all these church fathers that record the stuff that he's got going on. Um, and, and he preaches in Colchis for a, a good amount of time and, and has a ministry going there, is building a church there uh, until intense persecution knocks on his door and they try and get him to, to spread his church, to remove all these different things, to stop preaching about this Jesus guy and doing all these things. And he wouldn't, and he kept preaching until the day that all these people, this mob came and stoned him to death. They killed him because he would not stop preaching about Jesus, that he would not stop talking about Jesus. One of many apostles, all of whom died for their faith, with the exception of John, who they couldn't kill even though they tried to boil him alive. He would not die. Pretty insane. (laughs) And so what, as we go full circle in this, we've got to be prepared to take a hit to be faithful to the Lord. And what I'm saying is you're probably not going to get boiled alive in the 21st century today. Like you might lose followers on your, your social medias. You might get people that give you bad looks that, that don't want to be your friends anymore. You might get in arguments and all of these different things. Like you might lose stuff. There's probably a cost to being faithful today. But we still got to be faithful to share the good news of what Jesus has done. Because we can't care more about our individual comfort than the eternal salvation of somebody that we care about. Like their eternity is hanging in the balance. If they do not know God, then his punishment, the wrath of God is still upon them for an eternity. So we can't be so selfish that we just hold in what we know, this this incredible message of grace because we're afraid of what they might say and what they might think. We can't care more about our comfort than their salvation. So we, like the apostles, we trust God with those resources. You can't save people. 
prayerfully, we depend on God for every step of the way, trusting him with the results. And we're just witnesses. Say, this is what God has done. This is who God is. And we invite them to see our lives, to see the way that we live. We invite them here to the bridge. And this is a gathering of believers. Man, if you don't know the Lord, I am so glad that you're here. I hope you're learning. If you have questions, please come find me. Talk to your friends that you have here. But more than anything else, let me tell you just what the bridge is. is a place for believers to come together to worship God because he's worthy of it. To sit under the teaching of his word because that's where life is found. That we're reminded of his goodness. We're reminded of our mission. That we're challenged. We're comforted. We learn truth. We're convicted of sin. We, we're together. And we encourage each other. And I hope this place is a refuge for you. That you can show up here and just relax. Man, I'm with the people of God. But we can't just stay here and leave everybody else out there. We've got to love people. We've got to meet them where we're at. Because by and large, people of the world are not just going to show up here. You get a few, then you Google churches in Denton and they show up here, which is awesome. I'm glad you're here. That's you. But we got to go to them. We have to go to the ends of the earth. One of the greatest invitations that Jesus asks all the time, come and see. Would you come and see? People had questions and said, hey, can we talk to you? Where are you going? Where are you staying tonight? And you said, hey, come and see. You follow me and see what God is all about, what God is up to, what you were made for. And maybe that's your invitation. Hey, would you just come and see what God's people are like? Would you come and see what, what God wants you to know? What an invitation that we can be a part of. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of of the apostles that have gone before us. And what started with 120 in an upstairs room, a place that weeks before they were hiding because they were so afraid of everyone that was around them. They were so afraid that that they were going to be identified with you. And so they locked the door and they hid. They went back to their old jobs. And then they saw you. They saw your power. They saw your goodness. They saw the life change that comes with, with you. And what started as 120, they were faithful to share and share and share and share. So God, with our people in this room, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to tell of your goodness, to tell of your righteousness, to be honest about a world that rebels against God, that that runs from him in hopes that they would meet you and experience your grace in a way that changes them forever. Oh God, more than anything else, I pray that we'd be faithful. Faithful to the end of our lives, trusting you with with the results, just to see what you might do in us and through us. Please stand as we worship.